Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. We are so glad that you are here with us this week, and I want to go ahead and take a moment of just personal privilege and welcome our friends from the Outreach Foundation who are here with us this morning. We are hosting this week a board meeting of the Outreach Foundation, which is a wonderful Presbyterian uh, mission organization that has been meeting for many, many years and with which we are partners. And it's such a, a joy to have all of you all here in San Antonio with us. Thank you for being here today. We're glad that you're here. And I'm just glad to see everybody here, especially on the Sunday after Easter. And we've all heard jokes about people showing up for Christmas and Easter and that, you know, these are usually traditionally low Sundays, these Sundays right after the big holidays. But let's just step aside from that. Let's not think about that. I'm just saying that by the time I finish today, you're going to be glad that you were here and not not here. So let me say this. Last Sunday was awesome. Easter was great. We had beautiful music. The sanctuary was full. It was beautiful. The, the food we had and our breakfast was wonderful. And we had the biggest crowd that we have had in two years. But I want to ask you this. Did anything really change after Easter? I don't mean the original Easter. Everything changed after the original Easter. I mean, after last Easter Sunday. Did it change anything? Or did we all just go back to business as usual? Well, the danger of a really good Easter service or a really good Christmas or Christmas Eve service is that people will think, oh, that's exciting. That was attractive. I don't want to miss that. And you know what? If I go this once, it'll be enough. And so in a sense, a really good Easter service or a really good Christmas service becomes like a vaccination, a vaccination that gives you just enough of the virus so that you won't get the real thing. And I love good Easter services, but the danger of a good Easter service is that it gives people just enough of the feeling of discipleship that they don't pursue the real thing. I'm about to read a passage to you, and when I'm finished, you are probably going to be asking yourself, why on earth is Bob reading this passage on the Sunday after Easter? It's hard to understand, and it's kind of harsh. I'll tell you why. It's because we've been studying the book of Hebrews for four months now, and this is the next passage. So why not skip it? I mean, after all, it's the Sunday after Easter. But you know what? Even though it's hard and even though it's harsh, it's still the word of God. And I think it has something very important for us to hear on the Sunday after Easter. I would even argue that while it is hard to understand and while it is a little harsh, this is one of the most love-filled passages in the book of Hebrews. The passage is Hebrews 10 verses 29, excuse me, 26 through 39. You can read along on the screens behind me. You can read along in your bulletin or if you brought your Bible or in the pew Bibles. 
But now hear the word of God from the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. For if we go, go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has, who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Now, somebody told me after the last service that the reason I really wanted to preach this passage is because I'm from South Carolina and we have to preach a fire and brimstone passage every so often. That's not the case. One of the statements I said just a moment ago is that I think that this is one of the most love-filled passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, why would I say that? Why would I say that this is one of the most love-filled passages in the book of Hebrews? I think that author and pastor John Piper sums it up pretty well. He said this, if the real world that God has created includes the reality of divine judgment and vengeance and the terrifying, furious fire of God's wrath, then honesty and love and wisdom will all include warnings of danger, not just promises of blessing. And the writer of this book of Hebrews will not be silent about the wrath of God. He says, oh, the grace of God in this book. Chapter after chapter celebrates the glorious provision of God in Jesus Christ to free us from our sin and to turn our future into a paradise of hope. The book of Hebrews is a book of love, including this passage.
Now, I want to introduce to you a new vocabulary word this morning, and yes, it will be on the test. The word is apostasy. Apostasy. What is apostasy? Well, look at verse 26. Apostasy means to go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That's one element of it. Now look at verses 28 and 29. Apostasy is also to set aside not only the law of Moses, but the sacrifice of the Son of God. Also, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So apostasy is the sin of knowing the truth, having full revelation, professing to believe, and then getting over it and walking away. A person who commits apostasy is called an apostate. Now, I'm not talking about this. I'm not teaching you this word because I think we need to go around labeling people. Walking down the hall, well, there's an apostate. There's an apostate. Sheep, goat, sheep, goat, sheep, goat. No, no, no. That's not what we're about. I don't want to hear any kids running down the hall. You're an apostate. No, you're an apostate. No, I mean, I don't want to hear that. But we do need to understand the substance of what God is warning us against. Again, Piper describes an apostate as someone who comes under the influence of truth in preaching and teaching. Someone who comes under the influence of love among the saints. Who has come under the influences of the ordinances and sacraments of the church. And who may have even felt the blowing of God's spirit of grace and tasted his wooing and winning influences. But it's not real. The consensus of scholars is that when the author of Hebrews refers to the, to the sanctified, the sanctified referred to in this passage are not really the redeemed, but rather those who are members of the visible church who follow Jesus when it benefits them, but then turn on him when it no longer serves their purposes. They may have convinced others. They may have even convinced themselves, but the Lord knows the truth, and the fruit of their lives bears it out. Now, there are many passages that speak to this, but one that immediately jumps to mind is Matthew chapter 7, 21. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven, who is in heaven. Then Paul calls them this. He says, They have what Paul calls the form of godliness, but not the truth thereof. Think about the, the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. The ones who have no roots, the ones who get snatched away, the ones who wither. And most of the time, if you're familiar with the word apostate, when you hear that word apostate, we think of a heretic. Someone who not only turns from God, but makes a very vocal rejection of Christianity or wages a war upon Christ and his church. But an apostate can also be someone who comes to Christ all the way up to the edge, knows the truth, maybe even intellectually believes the truth, and then finally 
turns and walks away, never really committing himself or herself to Christ. It's someone who no longer takes or never really took God seriously. John MacArthur calls apostasy the tragedy of getting over it. It's someone for whom the excitement of a new conversion is wearing off. Or maybe during that time in my life it really meant something, but it's starting to be a little bit of a hassle. The pressure's getting too high. The temptations are too attractive. The persecution seems too close and the rewards seem too far away. In many ways, this passage is talking about taking God's grace for granted. Most often, apostasy looks like this. I'll just put the Lord on the back burner for now until this job is over, until I've reached a certain level and I have more free time, until the deal's done, until I'm through this season. Now, this is not somebody who just gets lost or who stumbles. But this is someone that willingly chooses to set Christ aside for other priorities. An apostate is someone who continues in, in habitual sin because he no longer takes God seriously. Now, you know it, I know it. All of us have times of lapse. And all of us have times when sin enters in and we are not at our best and we may even be at our worst. If we say that we have no sin, says John, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But you know and I know that as a real Christian, when you drift away, when you turn on Christ, it just feels wrong. It feels oogie, like you've got a film across you. It doesn't sit right. Nothing feels straight. Everything's out of alignment. And that feeling is actually a gift of God. Remember how we talked about in chapter 9 that he not only deals with the flesh, he also purifies our conscience. That's a gift of God. That spiritual pain, that spiritual discomfort, that's a gift of God. And what it does is it causes you to return, to repent, and to reconcile. We all go through seasons like that. Like that. That's not apostasy. The writer of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that God does not drop us when we are dirty. You know, that's why he picked us up in the first place. We are dirty, but we are loved. We're broken, but we're still his children. But what stands out here is that for the apostate, sin is habitual. He says we go on sinning deliberately. The apostate makes his mind up and he willfully turns around and sets aside the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whether it's in neglect or in indifference, taking his grace for granted, just never taking it seriously. And then what happens? Chapter 2 tells us they just drift away. They just start to drift away. Now, why is apostasy so dangerous? There are two reasons. Number one, Number one is that there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. The author of Hebrews says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What that means is that without Christ, we are still dead in our sins and trespasses. There's no forgiveness because there is no sacrifice and no atonement. 
the early Christians to whom this letter of Hebrews was written were starting to turn around. They were starting to head back to Judaism. But guess what? The old sacrificial system is over. It's obsolete. They're not even in operation anymore. After 70 AD, the temple was gone, destroyed by the Romans. There's nothing to go back to. Jesus is the only sacrifice for sins. And if a person turns his back on Jesus Christ, there's no plan B. There's no alternative path to forgiveness. Jesus is a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice, therefore securing a perfect covenant. He provides everything the old covenant could not provide. Full and forever forgiveness of sins, full and forever access to God, and full and forever salvation. If we habitually forsake the only means of grace, we've had it. Number one, there's no, more, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Number two, apostasy is dangerous because it angers God. It's not just about what we're going to lose, what we give up. It's also about whom we provoke. Look at verses 29 through 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot, who has spurned the Son of God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Apostasy does not just make God sad. Apostasy makes the Lord angry. Our God is not a weepy pushover. In chapter 12, 29, the author of Hebrews calls him a consuming fire. And why? Because apostasy adds insult to the injury of his son. When we do not take seriously the cross of Christ or Christ's invitation to repentance and new life, we insult his gift. We add rejection to pain. We add guilt to grief. And we add shame to agony. In the 1750s, the great Massachusetts Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards summed up this warning in, the words, in words so powerful that they still get our attention and rattle our cages today. Edwards declared that the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready for the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. Now there's a lot more where that came from if you want me to go on. But he sets a pretty stark reality that this is no trifle. But this is also not a threat because this sermon is one of the most grace-filled, loving sermons ever preached on the North American continent. Listen to how he concludes. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in and that now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung open the door of mercy and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. 
Therefore, let everyone who is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The love of God provides escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God to vindicate the glory of God in forgiven sinners. That's the gospel. And Edwards writes, his glory shines more brightly, not in the face and not in the fire of his wrath, but in the bright, warm, peaceful breezes of his love above an infinitely deserved destruction. Grace is free to us, but it cost him everything. Don't make God angry by cheapening what cost him dearly. The first generation readers of this letter were facing terrible persecution. They had lost freedom and property. They knew what it meant to suffer for their faith and to lose family and friends for Jesus' sake. And they were starting to waver. But they didn't. They didn't turn back. They endured. The author of Hebrews wrote, But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes the most beautiful word in the gospel is that little word, but. But. Do you remember when you were in the zone when you were exposed to reproach and affliction, when you were partners with the persecuted, when you were compassionate to those in prison, when you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew something better was coming. He's not saying, do you remember the days when discipleship worked for us, when it was convenient, when it was easy? No, he's saying this. Do you remember when discipleship was hard? But we did it anyway because the Lord carried us through. We want things to be easy and familiar and light and upbeat and uncomplicated. But discipleship is not about making it easier to follow Jesus. Discipleship is about preparing people and encouraging, encouraging endurance so that people can follow Jesus when following Jesus is hard. You remember when it was hard, but by God's grace, you stood harder. Remember when you didn't want to be here because it was hard, but you came anyway. And not only that, you got more involved. Remember when we didn't want to have to stand up for the truth, but we stood up anyway. You remember when sacrifice was not just an idea, it was an honor? Suffering and hardship are not signs of failure. They're not signs that God has abandoned you. This is part of how we are conformed to the image of Christ who endured suffering for us. And moments of hardship and suffering are moments for God to shine through us. Listen, when you endure for Christ, the endurance of Christ is shown through you. 
He's saying, do you remember when it got hard and your suffering became martyrdom? What does martyrdom mean? Martyrdom means witness. Do you remember when your endurance became a testimony, an inspiration, a declaration, a witness that following Jesus Christ in discipleship but may not be worth that may not be cheap but it's worth it. And I'm not going to be sold on cheap bromide shadows of the real thing. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. Up to this point the author of Hebrews has been saying, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the last verse of this passage says, don't shrink away. Either from preaching the truth, Bob, or from hearing the truth. You know, it's one thing to shrink from persecution or temptation, but what do, you, what do you shrink from? What do we shrink from? What keeps us on the edge or turns us away? Are we facing the same kind of stuff the early Christians faced? Anything like that? Are we facing anything like what Christians in China or Ukraine or Pakistan or North Korea or Iran or Saudi Arabia or Mexico are facing right now? Beloved, last Sunday we declared that the resurrection proves that what death or sin or fear can take away, God can give back. Don't get over it. Don't let it drift away. Don't throw away Easter on the day after Easter. Now, if this passage or this sermon makes you uncomfortable or angry or upset, good. Whew, I'm not the only one. But I want you to hear this. If you are feeling that way right now, it means that you are alive. It means that you are awake, spiritually dead people. Do not have a, pur a purified conscience that feels the weight of sin, the weight of distance, the weight of brokenness. And what it means if we're alive is that we can repent and reconcile and return to him. Now, I want you to think back in your own life, your own journey of faith, and I want you to ask yourself, do you remember a time when it was hard but by God's grace, you stood harder. Did you grow more or less in that season? Beloved, I'm telling you, you have the courage. You have the time. You have the community. And most of all, you have the truth. Jesus did not die to make discipleship easy or convenient. He gave his life so that I could endure the hard. 
Jesus didn't buy you cheap, and he doesn't sell you short. Don't shrink back. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. And don't you dare sell yourself or your family short. Live in God's grace, not on the edge, but all the way in. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, it is hard to follow you. Not necessarily in our context because we are persecuted, but because we are distracted, we are tempted. There are so many other idols of our hearts that compete for our time and make us think that just a little bit of discipleship is enough. Lord, don't allow ourselves, don't allow us to trick ourselves into being vaccinated against real grace, real discipleship, real truth. But rather, O oh Lord, awaken in us the memory of when it was hard and we grew. And remind us, O oh God, that there is so much more. And by your resurrection power, you want to give it all to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.